and welcome back to the Why Hockey Periodical Podcast. It is good to be back as the Panthers are now playing hockey again after two weeks off. It's nice to know that they can play again. Hey, they didn't have that many games postponed, but really wonderful to have a guest on. Somebody who I know all of you follow on Twitter, one of the must-follows when it comes to just hockey analysis in general. You know him as Jay Fresh. We know all of us now as Jack Frazier of EP Ringside. How are you doing, Jack? Welcome to the show. I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. I love still the Miami Vice Patrick Line avatar. It's great. Yeah, I've kind of uh, stuck with it. I think I actually lost the the image file of my old avatar, so I'm pretty much stuck with it until I can come up with something new. But I uh, forgot what your old avatar was. Now I just I think you know is is Miami Vice Patrick Line. <laughs> yeah, it was well, it was an illustration from uh, that compilation of articles I released, which was uh, me uh, at a hockey game, but turned away from the ice and looking at a computer screen. Oh, that's uh, right. That's what that was that now yeah. I remember. Yes. Yeah. Which was a good bit, but, uh, yeah, I think I'd have to upgrade it if I was going to switch back. That's a wonderful bit though. I like that bit. It, it's perfect sense for, uh, the, the hockey analytics debate, which again, I've been on Twitter too long, so I can remember when it started and how it is now. I spend way too much time on Twitter. I think we all do. Um, before we get into all of the talk about the Panthers and this season in general, I, if for people don't know your story of how you got into this and how you've become who you are now, I want people to know it. And I want you to tell it because I only remember bits and pieces, but I remember it being one of those great stories where you come at this from weird angles and it helps explain just a, the, some of how you got to where you got to. And I always love those kinds of stories. So tell everyone a little about that. Sure. Well, I mean, I've been a hockey fan for god almost almost 20 years now at this point uh and had kind of varying degrees of interest in hockey stats like i wasn't really super deep in you know those kinds of arguments when they were happening in like the early 2010s you know i followed a couple people on twitter and you know would check in and everything but it wasn't really something that i was super super into uh and then pretty much right before the pandemic hit uh, i was doing my master's degree and as part of it, uh, wanted to brush up on some, you know, different types of software and things like that, uh, that I would be able to use in my actual field. And a lot of the default data sets that you'd work with on those were pretty boring. Like it would be like supermarket payrolls and stuff like that. So I just started using hockey stats instead, uh, you know, because it was something that I found a lot more interesting. And so, you know, part of it was there were some programs that were, you know, focused on, you know, design or visualizations and things like that. So I started putting together these compilations of different hockey statistics for players uh, on the cards. And I thought they were pretty useful for when, you know, say the Penguins were interested in a player, I could just bring up the player's name and all of his stats would pop up and I'd be able to compare them to other guys. And I guess I put them out there for a couple of my friends. They thought they were cool and that I should share them on Twitter. And so I did that. And, uh, yeah, pretty much right off the bat, they got quite a bit of attention, a, a couple, you know, advantageous shares from influential people in hockey media. And uh, it kind of all ballooned from there, like the pandemic hit just about a month later. And uh, all the proper hockey writers and reporters all went on vacation, and or at least took a break. And I suddenly was graduating with not a lot of job prospects, because everything had pretty much been canceled. And so I decided to start leaning into it a little bit more. You know, I put effort into upgrading the visualizations and, and getting to understand more of what was behind them. 
uh, I started writing uh, and everything kind of came together where I was able to, you know, set up a Patreon and actually start to, you know, share these with people and, and make a bit of income from it and then start writing uh, first on a Substack and, and, you know, now I write for, for Elite Prospects. So it's been a pretty crazy and, and quick journey from being a complete no one and you know the hockey world and and you know not not even being someone who was even thinking about doing that uh to to where i am now where i'm, I'm very happy with how things have gone so it, it has been pretty crazy it's a series of funny happy accidents sometimes in the world that gets you to where you get to and you sometimes can't really even determine that path and you know i always think about those weird angles in life where the pandemic actually made things better. And it's one of the times in life where it's actually, I think the pandemic sort of in a morbid way helped you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it definitely gave me a lot of, a lot of empty time to fill. And, you know, I mean, I would always, you know, the, these podcasts, for example, that I listened to for, for years and years, like the, the PDO cast or dying alive or, or things like that, you know, suddenly finding myself in a position where I'm guesting on them. Like that's, I think a pretty perfect example of just how, unexpected and and you know i always think of it as kind of found money this wasn't something that i expected to happen or was even really pushing that hard to happen it just kind of everything came together and and i'm i'm super fortunate for that and and i know that it's not something that a lot of people get to do or, or get to you know even be able to find the time to do in their free time let alone be able to to make a little bit of a living off it it's funny how i remember being involved or well, not just seeing some of the discussions, but going to those old analytics conferences. I brought up the DC one in 2015, where everyone was speaking, where the, uh, the Canucks army guys, Mike McCurdy was speaking at that time. And it was, it was such a fascinating to remember that and how far it's coming. Jesus, it's been seven years since that conference, which doesn't seem real to me. And how many of these people either now are working for teams or they're legitimately making money doing this largely because they've gotten popular on Twitter and people have a hungering, you know, for this, for this data, for this information. And the fact that when you lose some people, whether it be to companies or to teams, there's always going to be someone comes in that fills the void. And you're a really cool example of that. And just before we get into the, the nitty gritty of this stuff, the, the, the scheme for your visualizations, the card aspect of it, was that just something that happened because it was something that was available to you as you were working through academics and your master's or is it something that you kind of found over time because you're more of a visual learner and some people do better with that than just seeing the numbers posted in front of them where'd you get the idea for the the style you use for putting out those cards and the different varieties of cards you now have well I was always way more of a design guy than a math or stats guy like I did quite poorly in high school math and it was never really a strength of mine uh didn't really do a lot of of hard stuff like that in uh in undergrad or graduate school you know I, I i finally kind of had to take a high level uh statistics uh, statistics course in my graduate studies uh just about a year before i started doing all this stuff uh but design was something that i was always interested in you know i was a pretty active member on you know a lot of sports design you know message boards and stuff when i was like in junior high school i would make concept logos and uniforms and things like that uh, and, and I actually kind of had a 50-50 decision when I went into undergrad of whether I was going to go to design school to do graphic design or if I was going to do what I ended up doing. And, and I don't have any regrets about that because, as it turned out, uh, 
I ended up stumbling into something where I was actually able to do a certain amount of design. And so when it came time to, you know, that I was trying to put together visualizations and stuff, there was never any doubt that the visual aspect was going to be something that I would prioritize. And I think that that's something that people have, have really responded to is that, you know, like you said, there's a lot of data here and a lot of it is complicated and a lot of it is not super intuitive to a lot of people. And so if you want to get things across, but then also have people pay attention to you, it really benefits to have something that's visually striking and clean and neatly organized and that you can really get a grasp of at a total glance. Uh, and that's all design. Like that is, that's purely about what you're able to communicate visually. Um, and so things that are as, as seemingly petty and insignificant as just layouts and colors. And I mean, even font choices, uh, you know, become these very important decisions that you have to make. And the people who are able to, I think, communicate visually in that way, uh, you know, Dom Lucision is, is, a, is another guy in this field who is, is great at the visual aspect and, and has always been kind of, you know, you know, arguably the best at, at communicating things in a way that's not only, you know, uh, easy to understand, but also has a very kind of professional and, and kind of design focused look to it. Uh, that gives you absolutely an upper hand. And, and I think it, it speaks to, like you said, you know, I, I was not, I'm, I have never been to a, to an analytics conference before. Like, you know, this is a, it's purely a pandemic thing of, you know, I, I wasn't interested in that kind of thing when they were actually able to be happening. Um, but like you said, there's always people who are able to fill in gaps that are either left by people departing for other things or, you know, just stuff that doesn't exist. And I, I feel like there was definitely a, a gap out there for something that was more design focused uh, and, and visualization focused. And I was fortunate enough to have the time on my hands and the opportunity to play with that a little bit. It's funny now how we have the visualizations that we have in this, not just Dom, but Micah has his own style. You have say the heat maps that we've had for a couple of years. You have money puck with, you know, the deserve to win meter you know, things like that. Like there are a lot of different ways that we have seen how this has evolved. And again, I couldn't have imagined when I was going to that analytic conference interested in it. Obviously part of that was writing a story about it. And then part of it was also, I'm starting to know these people and they're good people. And I couldn't have imagined like seven years ago that this is what this had become, you know, and what it has become. It's kind of crazy to think about that because half the speakers in that now work for teams. You know, Eric Parnas is the brains behind the abs being a machine. Rob Bowman works for the Kings. The Canucks Army guys work for multiple different teams. Now, it's, it's funny how I think about that as a inflection point just in my own experiences. And, and I stink at math. I did get five on an AP calculus exam. But one of the reasons why I love J school is that I didn't have to do any math other than a basic stat class, which most people ignored quite a bit during that time. Anyway, it's great to have that background because I don't think some people out there actually know the full extent of your story. They just started following you going, hey, this guy's awesome. He produces great work. And now the story is, is part of the equation. So let's talk about this season. There's a lot to talk about. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the Panthers. Obviously, we, we've talked about them in the terms that we talk about them on Y Hockey quite a bit. But from your perspective, when you're just looking at you know, that team and the insane things that they are able to do at times. What stands out to you the most? Because I'm always curious what neutrals and non-Panthers bubble people think of what this team is. 
Well, I mean, I think they're they're just a well-oiled machine at this point, and they have not lost a beat even after making a coaching switch. And and I think that you know, to his credit, Andrew Burnett has basically been able to carry on the stylistic elements of the Panthers game that let them kind of suddenly launch into the contender tier last season and has just allowed them to keep running that with, with no hiccups at all. You know, you look at what this team's able to do offensively and it's, you know, it's pretty much everything. Like it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's like the avalanche last year in terms of you look at, you know, any one of these kinds of offensive metrics and they're going to be doing amazing at it. They're getting plenty of shots. They're getting all the chances. They have all the pre-shot movement that you like to see in terms of being able to uh, exceed those, uh, those expected goals, any kind of pass, you know, like I'm looking at uh, something that I've been digging into quite a bit in the past two weeks or so is the, uh, the uh, manually tracked microstats that uh, Corey Schneider, uh, you know, not the, not former goalie Corey Schneider, but uh, uh Hockey Multiple time Schneider. Y Hockey podcast guest and good friend of ours, Corey Schneider. Glad to hear it. Uh, yeah, you know, just the the insane work that he does tracking games throughout the season. Uh, you know, the samples are starting to get pretty significant. And uh, I've been going through them essentially. And, and, you know, like I did, you know, two years ago, putting together visualizations that are for my own purposes uh, because, you know, this isn't my data to sell. So these really are just kind of purely from a perspective of if I'm talking about a team or if I'm writing about a team, I want to have all this data in front of me. So like in this case, you know, you talk about taking a wide amount of data and putting it all in one position. Like right now I'm looking at a visualization that I've put together, you know, for the Panthers, uh, which could be for any team, uh, which has probably, you know, just eyeballing it right now, probably at least 40 different metrics on it and probably actually more than that maybe about 50 um you know and what i could tell you about how they look to me is that there's an awful lot of blue on this uh, on this page would imagine uh, so yeah you know and you look you know obviously the shots and the goals stand out to you but the thing that the panthers do that really sticks out to me in terms of how they compare to other teams is not only what we could assume which is that they enter the zone with possession a lot and a lot of those chances lead to or a lot of those entries lead to scoring chances. Uh, but, you know, passing and stuff is something that really sticks out to me. Uh, first in the league in shot assists coming from the defensive zone, which means that their their defensemen are sending pucks up the ice and they're turning into chances. You know, second in the league in cross-slot passes, uh, second in the league in passes from behind the net, uh, first in the league in, in passes that come from the center lane of the ice. Like, the, the puck movement that the Panthers have been able to put together is just is really on another level from any other team in the NHL this year. And it's why they're not only getting the opportunities that they are, but why I think that they've been able to just pile up goals to such a great extent is because not only are they getting pucks on net, but before those pucks end up on net, they are moving around the ice and getting goalies moving and defensemen out of position. Uh, and it really has been something incredible to see. And, and I'm, I'm glad that they've been able to keep up and, and even improve at that uh even while losing i think it's fair to say the architect of the system that they've been putting in place the past two seasons it's so funny because i think about the first year of joe quenville and i think about the fact that he had to play mark pesic as a forward because he couldn't play on the blue line he was terrible and they had no forwards they had no depth and in two years They've gone from that, which is they were playing the Quenville system, but they did what they could with it because he didn't have the personnel to this machine of a team 
that has legitimately 18 forwards that could play any given night and nobody would complain. And that, 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 that's what's most incredible to me. And also when I look at Corey's charts and he'll put the visualizations of his microstats and the Panthers are off in the top right-hand corner and he has to expand the X and Y axis because the Panthers have broken the scale. It's just kind of remarkable to see what they're doing. And it, it doesn't even feel real at times when you watch them, right? Like I've seen multiple games this year and mostly they've happened against Columbus where it just looks like they're playing an ECHL team. And I've, I've never been able to say that watching this team as long as I have. And what stands out to you the most about, I mean, you've given all these crazy numbers, but is there any one particular stat that makes you go, okay, this is, this is something that's happening on another level that even the other greatest teams in the league, the Carolina, Colorado, Vegas of the world are not able to reach. Well, you know, I think I've, I've, I've listened to you a couple of the ones that stand out. I don't know if it's, it's one, it's one thing necessarily. I think it's just like the combination of being so good at so many different things offensively, you know, that's not something that you tend to see. Like, even if you look at other teams that are doing very well, like the Toronto Maple Leafs, for example, who are having a very strong offensive season, you know, there's still areas that you can tell, okay, they're, they're focusing on this and they're maybe neglecting this a little bit. Uh, you know, they're, they're not getting, you know, they're not sending pucks up to the point or they're not really attacking off the rush as much uh, or they're not really creating as many one-timers, you know, and this is a team that's one of the best offensive teams in the league. Uh, with the Panthers, it's the fact that it's just, it's just everything, you know, it's just, they are, they are just good at pretty much everything offensively. And, you know, they're, they're better at some things than others. Like, I think it's pretty obvious that the rush is their bread and butter. Uh, and that has really been kind of the key to their success and, and what is driving opponents so crazy. And it's a combination of the system and having players who can play the system where, you know, I mean, guys like Huberdo, you tell them to go up and down the ice on the rush, they're going to be very pleased about that. Uh, but yeah, it's really kind of everything coming together. And, and at this point, the only question really is whether they're going to be able to go at it full force in the playoffs uh, which isn't totally assured. And, and I think there's maybe reason to, to be curious about how much they're going to be able to translate this, this regular season success into the postseason. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, this team has been good enough off the four check off the cycle, you know, in the zone uh, that you almost think that they could play pretty much any way that you'd want them to, or any way that their opponent would demand them to uh, and still be able to succeed. It's fascinating because I think they actually tried to play the way they're playing in the playoffs last year. And at times it really did work. The times when it didn't work was when Andre Vasilevsky went on a heater. Like you can remember game one of that series. It was like most Panthers games this year. Game three was like that too, where there were goals everywhere, there were chances everywhere. And the only time where I didn't think it worked really that well was when they ran out of gas in game six, but they, they tried to play that last year in the playoffs, I think to some extent, and it kind of worked. It's, and I think they're going to try to do it again because if they have last change, and that's what I think is really interesting is at home is that they could just do whatever they want, basically. And you have to have some level of crazy to beat them unless you're the Seattle Kraken, which, you know, it's the NHL weird things happen with that. Um, I have, my wonder about them in the playoffs is also, can they, can they slow it down? Because I think the, the strength of this team is when everybody's moving and everybody's in motion. If they're able to do that constantly, 
then they're better than everybody because they're faster than everybody. And they're also have the players that are more intuitive that can move these things without thinking about it. But when the game slows down and there's a lot less motion, there's a lot more, you know, setup. I think that's where this team might struggle a little bit, but it's a guess. Yeah. Well, and, and in that case, the question becomes, you know, what happens when they do run into a team who their entire, you know, their entire thing is based on slowing things down. You know, what happens when they play, let's say the Boston Bruins who are the, the best team in the league right now at limiting scoring chances. And especially just that completely stuffing teams that are trying to get in on the rush against them. Uh, you know, that's really been their, their biggest strength throughout the season. Even if they, you know, Bruins fans themselves are complaining about the team's defensive personnel and stuff like that. The facts are the facts. And, and they really have been, you know, one of the best, if not the best teams in the league at, slowing opponents down especially off the rush and you know and the carolina hurricanes who are another team that the panthers might have to go through you know that's their same plan like they really do not give up the blue line and the question that i guess i would have for about the panthers that i'd be curious to see resolved in the playoffs is whether a team like carolina could essentially change the terms of play and really put the panthers in a situation where they have to you know, they end up having to play the Hurricanes game, essentially. You know, they have to play the slowed down dump and chase game instead of the high flying one that they've been playing throughout the season. Um, you know, in terms of entertaining hockey to watch, I certainly hope that the Panthers can just blow through the playoffs doing what they're doing and without having to, to make gigantic shifts. But I think that that will be the thing to watch for, because at this point, I think the Panthers have pretty much proven everything there is to prove in the regular season. It's funny how you're right about that because last year the Panthers were awful against Carolina. They just stunk. And this year they beat them twice and steamrolled them both times. And it's funny how we're recording this the afternoon when they play again. So by the time this is recorded, uh, we don't know what's going to happen in that game. By the time it's released, you will. And Carolina is one of those teams where I wonder about that to me, though. It's still about Tampa, though. It, it will continuously be about Tampa until Tampa loses. Um is there any, like, in terms of players, I mean, the numbers are insane for everybody on the Panthers, but is there any one player that stands out to you in, in a unique way, one or another? Because for me, I could go over, like, a bunch of different players in this team and go, wow, these numbers are ridiculous. But I think what's most incredible about the Panthers is how they make everyone's numbers look ridiculous, i.e. Uh, Mason Marchment having one of the best games in individuals tracking history against Columbus with six points and game score being, like, off the scale. So is there any like one player that you find stands out to you when looking at this team? Or is it just a, the fact that everybody, no matter who they play, pretty much has gaudy numbers because you play for the Panthers at this point? Well, I think I think it's both. Uh, so, I mean, my one of my favorite players on, on the Panthers and one of my favorite players in the league is uh, 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 Mackenzie Weger who I watched why hockey's favorite player, actually. Exactly. I watched uh, a lot of when he played for the Halifax Mooseheads, who are my hometown junior team, uh, didn't have any ideas that he was going to end up being a star at the NHL level for sure. I remember being actually kind of surprised when he got drafted uh, as opposed to one of their other defensemen in the seventh round back in 2013. Uh, but man, I mean, he has just developed into a total monster, like, like really unbelievable what he's been able to turn into I, I think at this point it's hard to really call him underrated but 
I mean, he's just he's just good at everything. Like he is kind of you know the Panthers turned into a defenseman. Like he's obviously we know he's brilliant defensively, just a, a monster defending the blue line. Uh, great at, at forcing dump-ins or, or stripping uh, players at, at the blue line and turning the puck the other way. Um, and I think that he does get maybe shoehorned in. It's like, okay, he's the defensive defenseman. Uh, but his transition play is, is just as good. And, and he is the engine of the Florida Panthers transition game. I think there's a lot of people who will attribute it to Aaron Ekblad just because of the reputation. But I, I think it's kind of clear at this point that what Ekblad does – is a lot, you know, offensively at least, is a lot more centered around what happens in the offensive zone. And Mackenzie Weger, like, I mean, at this point, you can't really, you can't argue with the facts that Weger is by far their most active player in transition. Uh, one of the most uh, active players in the league when it comes to passing the puck from the defensive zone. And, and even, you know, in the offensive zone, like he is just excellent at moving it at this point. And there are, you know, there are occasionally concerns with, turnovers or maybe some poor decisions or you know that happen in isolation but as a whole I have a really hard time not considering Mackenzie Weger to be one of the top defensemen in the league which seems like an absolutely crazy thing to say considering you know where he was just a couple seasons ago well Um, he was getting scratched by Bob Bugner and we were on this podcast me and my co-host saying what the heck are you doing he's actually playing differently to all these other defensemen and he's good please put him in the lineup and it took Joel Quenville to get it out of him. We thought that there was something there for a while, but Bugner didn't, well, and it's not a surprise, I guess, that Bugner didn't necessarily trust him all that much. And then Joel Quenville comes in, he puts him with Aaron Eckblad, and the rest is history. And it kind of surprised us just how crazy he got. And, I mean, I think about last year when he had to do everything pretty much because Eckblad was hurt, and he did even better at it than any of us could have imagined. It was just one of those moments, okay, this is, this is beyond insane. None, even our, the biggest fans, even the ones of us who were wondering about his play and hyping him up for years previous, could have we never could have seen that coming. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I remember saying when Ekblad got hurt that, like, this is, this is where we learn what Mackenzie Weger is because for years I had been, I don't, you know, for years was pushing it, for a year I had been, I had been saying that Mackenzie Weger was you know, an elite or borderline elite defenseman, uh, that he wasn't a process, a project or, or a uh, product of Aaron Eckblad and, and that he was in a lot of ways, the guy who was responsible for the bulk of that pairing success. And I, I don't think anybody really had believed that because he was Mackenzie Weger and Aaron Eckblad was Aaron Eckblad, you know, nobody had ever heard of Weger pretty much. And, and Eckblad had huge pedigree. And then, you know, what happens for the remainder of the regular season and in the playoffs is that Weger proved us right, basically. Like he, you know, he put up even better numbers playing with a waiver wire guy and Gustav Forsling uh, than he even had before with, with Ekblad. Like he, and he had to do everything. Like, as you're saying, he had hero to ball. be. He, he does a lot of hero ball. Yeah. He, he had to do all the puck handling. He had to do all the transition play. He had to be the guy defensively and he did all of it exceptionally well. And, and he's continued to do it this season. Uh, so, so Weger is the guy that I would, you know, am, am most fond of on, on the Panthers for sure. But I think that the, the thing of, you know, all these players, they come to Florida and magically turn into stars, I think is worth mentioning and, and worth considering because we have seen it quite a bit uh, in the past two seasons where 
players who are not doing very well in other places or at least struggling to really find a home come to Florida and the Florida system and just plug in, you know, brilliantly and, and turn into stars. And, and that has become, I think, a, an interesting back and forth of, you know, what, where are these results coming from? Like is, is Bill Zito finding star players uh, that have been neglected and then, you know, like so he like he's so it all comes down to i guess player identification or is it a matter of like this panther system is so powerful that you can plug in carter verhage's and gustav forslings and you know sam bennett's and brandon montours and guys who are not putting up good results in other areas and suddenly they'll start looking brilliant um and i think that's an interesting thing because i think it gets into more deep-seated questions about you know player identification and player evaluation and how much we value things like systems and fits and things like that because i I, based on the evidence that we have so far i think there's definitely something to be said for the job that florida has done at identifying players who have certain skills that will fit in their system but i have a really hard time not saying okay there's something in this system that is what is unlocking these players and turning guys like mason marchment and gustav forsling etc uh into these you know analytical darlings who are suddenly looking like six million dollar players I, I called it the car wash last year when like you come through the car wash you get all shiny and new and then you get the bag and that's what happened with alex wenberg who had career years at everything and you know some of that seattle but it's Like, I think it's kind of both because while I have a lot of reason to believe that this is just the system that the Panthers are playing, and it kind of happened with the Quenville Chicago teams in the early 2010s a little bit. I don't know if it happened to this degree, but I also think it's possible that they're just really good at figuring out how do we maximize a skill set of a player and use that skill set in exactly the role where it's required and say, that's all you have to do. The rest is not up to you. We've got guys who can do that because that was big thing with, with Brandon Montour when he was acquired, his numbers were awful. And we were like, okay, what are they doing here? They basically put Brandon Montour in the most Brandon Montour position possible, doing the things he's good at and nothing else. Same with Radko Gudis, same with guys like, you know, up forwards like Verhage and, Duclair and and even the better players are kind of like that in some way and so I think it's both but I don't have the ability to drill into that other than what I see and what I know from the history of covering this team so I'd like somebody who's smarter than me to look into that because what's going to be really funny is somebody's going to give Mason Marchman a much too big contract this offseason thinking he's going to replicate his performance with some other team and that's very likely to not happen even though I'm very happy that Mason Marchman's probably going to get the bag yeah, I think for sure. I think it just it just means that we need to be considerate of how skill sets and systems might intersect. Uh, I mean, we've seen similar things with other teams. Like we've seen uh, the Penguins, for example. People always complain about how the Penguins are able to conjure up these NHL caliber players out of nothing. And I think a lot of it is the same thing. Like it's a combination of player identification and then a system and deployment that allows them to turn into the best versions of themselves. So it, you know, it just means you have to be more careful and more considerate and, and more, more knowledgeable, I guess, of players that to figure out how they're going to work. And, and I think it gives 
teams like the Penguins and the Panthers a huge advantage, where instead of having to go out and acquire expensive pieces, you can essentially, you know, look somewhat into the bargain bin and find inexpensive players. And it's not a matter of, you know, uh, you don't have to really even, you know, moneyball it and find, you know, these, these incredible gems with amazing underlying numbers who are being uh, ignored. Uh, you can basically just build them yourselves. Like you can identify, you know, maybe players that have potential or have certain physical characteristics or things like that. And then know with confidence that you're going to be able to plug them into your roster and that they'll find success. And I, I think the Penguins have been the best team at that for a while. And the Panthers, I think, have pretty much entered that zone as well. So that's the best position you can really be in is, is have the ability to, instead of acquiring expensive players at a premium, you can essentially just build the players yourself from, you know, waiver wires and mid-round picks. It's so funny that they go from the team that had no depth and Dale Talon, who had his ups and downs, was given out contracts to Brett Connolly's. And now the Panthers are just plucking Mason Marchments off the trees, basically, and turning Ryan Lomberg into somebody that is more than useful. And you're just going, okay, this team and, and Elliot Friedman, when the Panthers were looking for their GM in a year and a half ago, he's like, they want to be better at player development. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, they, you should always be good at player development, but the Panthers were maybe the worst team in the league at that other than happy accidents, and now they might be one of the best teams in the league at that, and it's hilarious. It, it's hilarious how good this team became almost overnight, and it doesn't feel real as somebody who spent years yelling about it. Uh, let's go to some other teams and things around the league that's interesting. Uh, particularly, I think you get a lot of buzz during the trade deadline because you can produce these, these player cards, and everyone looks at them almost immediately for like instant grades. Uh, so around this trade deadline, who is the most interesting player for you available that's not necessarily under the radar, but isn't getting the same level of talk that you'd see some of the bigger names getting that you'd be interested in seeing where they get moved to? Well, I mean, one guy who I highlighted yesterday, who I, I amusingly you brought up a couple of minutes ago is, is Mark Pissick, who, you know, for however poorly he was doing in his role in uh, really in badly. Sorry has, to say, has uh, has been really great in the past two seasons, uh, including this season in Buffalo, where he's been playing in a second pair role. Uh, hasn't been asked to do too much in terms of, you know, he's, he doesn't have the best puck skills in the league or anything like that. But he he does the job that he has, and uh, and it it works out pretty well for him. Like he he has had very strong results at at both ends of the ice on I think pretty flawed teams and, and pretty different teams in, in Dallas and uh, and in Buffalo. Uh, and, and at a deadline where teams will be looking at a premium to add defensive depth and especially cheap defensive depth. I mean, there are guys like Ben Sherratt out there and, and you know, other players who maybe will go for more than I think they should necessarily go for. I'd be curious to see kind of who looks at a guy like Mark Pisick or or like Brett Kulak, who I think is another player who fits that mold as well. Uh, a guy who for the Canadians has pretty quietly succeeded, whether it is as kind of a bottom pairing guy, uh, whether it's, you know, I mean, him and Jeff Petrie were the best pairing in the NHL for, for several years. Uh, and, you know, Petrie for all the attention that he got last season because of all the goals. Uh, you know, his underlying numbers did go down when he was separated from from Kulak. Like there really is something 
some simple skill set that Kulak has that is able to kind of lock in with with maybe a, a better player, you know, not quite in a Devon Taves or Mackenzie Weger way, uh, but, you know, I think just kind of a, a very subtle ability to, to support a better line mate that I think could be pretty useful at the deadline. So those are two players who I think are maybe under the radar depth additions that I'd be interested to see. Um, but I have to admit, I am very curious to see, even if I don't think that they're particularly good players at this point, what happens with Phil Kessel and PK Subban? Um, just because they're both, I think, very similar players in terms of they have high salaries, you know, even at 50% retained, Kessel would still be a $3.7 million player, I think, uh, or maybe even a $4 million player, actually. Uh, uh, PK Subban would be a $4.5 million player. You know, there are things that both of those players can do. Uh, they, they do still, I think, bring something to the table. It's obviously not something that's even really comparable at all with what they did in the past. And there are legitimate issues that you'd have with both of them. So I, I would just be curious, not necessarily even to see where they go, but just to see, you know, if they go and what exactly their role would be on an acquiring team if that happens. I think Phil Kessel is much more likely to go than Subban. I think Kessel would thrive on a team that just, you know, you want to add a little bit more depth offensively uh, and you can use him in a role that suits him because you know, he's going to play and you know what he can give you. I mean, he's obviously on the worst team in the league. Well, worst or second worst, depending on how you view it. I'm not sure Subban though. I, I, I don't, other than maybe the like biggest, Panthers style car washes in the league. I'm not sure many teams could get the most out of them at this point. In the case of Subban, I'm just not sure about that. Yeah. Like there's, there's still stuff that he can do. Like he, he does still like he, I think he still is decent in the offensive zone. I don't mean offensively as a whole. I just mean like in the offensive zone, I think he can still move the puck and, and I think he can still, Honestly, he can move the puck on the breakout too. It's the, the skating is really the issue. And it, it was bad a couple of years ago. It's been really bad, uh, you know, especially bad this season. The defensive numbers are a complete nightmare. Um, but, you know, but he has admittedly had to play a pretty significant role on a not very good team. And of course, part of the reason his team is not very good is because they play PK Subban for 20 minutes a night or whatever it is. But I, I would just be curious, not even that I think he's necessarily going to do well on another team at this point, but I just, I, I want to see if a team tries it, you know, if a team is willing to give him a shot on a bottom pair, even if they got him as kind of a very cheap depth option just to be able to give him a shot on the bottom pair and see if it works and then, you know, maybe move on or healthy scratch him if, if it's not. Uh, but yeah, like th those two players, I think are very interesting to me just in terms of, you know, how their stock has fallen and just, I mean, you know, both players were traded at the, uh, in the 2019 off season. Uh, I think there were big ideas for both of them that, you know, Subban was still a number one defenseman and, and would be in, in New Jersey and in Kessel's case that he would, you know, be an almost point per game player, even in Arizona, obviously neither of those panned out, um, but they are both pretty high pedigree players and, and they 
both, I think, still bring something to the table. So I, I really hope that they move. Um, I just would be so curious to find out who's willing to do it. I think Castle will. I'm not sure about Sue then. That, that's, my, that's my guess. Uh, and as we start to wrap this up, just thinking about some other players that you're fascinated with for one reason or another, is there, are there any couple of players that you're like, I have to watch this guy, whether it be for, for good or for bad, are there a couple of players in the league this year that, that, that capture your attention above all others for whatever reason? Do you mean uh, like in the deadline or do you it, mean? Well, not just in the deadline, but just in general, like I'm going to turn on the games tonight and I'm going to watch this. I'm going to watch this player for some one reason or another, whether it's a good player on a bad team or this guy has an interesting skill set that I don't see anywhere else or his numbers stand out to me for X and Y reasons. Well, I mean, one player who I'm curious about, and I haven't watched him very much, but just because of all the talk that's coming up around him is Brandon Hagel of the uh, Chicago Blackhawks, just because I think he's not a player that has a lot of cachet around the league. He's producing fairly well. Uh, but I mean, the rumors around him are that the Hawks are interested in moving in, but that the price is something like a first round pick and a, and a good prospect, which for a player that I, I think very few people have ever actually really heard of was, I mean, it was very surprising to me to hear that. Um, but I mean, looking at his numbers, he does have some pretty intriguing qualities to him, especially in terms of passing. Like he's not a shooter, but he does rank almost near the top of the league in terms of cross slot passes uh you know he's he's a lead in terms of his his assists off the rush and things like that which are usually good indicators like that's the kind of thing that like jordan Cairo had going for him last season and i don't know if that necessarily means that i think he's gonna break out and, and become a player who is worth a first round pick and a good prospect but just the combination of of the hawks valuing him like that and seeing those underlying numbers makes me think that I should probably be paying a little attention to Brandon Hagel. Well, if he goes uh, so to if, Florida, you know what's going to happen. So, yeah, there you go. So, I mean, that would be exactly the kind of uh, exactly the kind of outcome. But yeah, I mean, like I, I don't know whether maybe he has other underlying numbers that that teams with good analytics departments are going to be paying attention to. But uh, yeah, he's not a guy you hear that much about. And so when you have that kind of gap between here's what the team expects to get for him. And what you think his reputation is, I, I think that there's a lot of room for surprises and, and intrigue. So I'll be keeping an eye on him. That's an interesting one. And then for teams, the te- the good teams are the good teams. But is there any one team like that you're most curious about in the fact that they could make a run and we're not thinking about that right now? Because like you know everybody's taught like the eight teams in the East, the eight teams in the East. But is there a team out West maybe that you're going, okay, we're, we're not talking about this team as a, as a legitimate threat to make a run enough because they do some things well as we try to figure out the West, which is not figure outable, if that's a better term for that at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if there are any teams that really stick out to me because I, I, there's a lot of teams who are on the bubble in the West who I d- would prefer not be on the bubble in the West for purely trade deadline related reasons. Like I really would love for the stars and for the ducks to just lose their next four games. And then, because there's just, there's so many good rentals on those teams. And and I would hate to see guys like Hampus Lindholm and Josh Manson and Joe Pavelski and John Klingberg, you know, and, and Ricard Raquel, you know, et cetera, et cetera, just kind of sit on, bubble teams and then you know immediately after the deadline it turns out that they're not going to go to the playoffs um right now i think the uh the stars have i think like a slightly over 50 percent chance of making the playoffs 
the Ducks are, I think, around 40%. Um, I would like for those teams to regress and, and end up where I think they actually belong just for the sake of moving those teams. In terms of teams that I think could make a run, I, I think that a lot of people are sleeping on Boston. Um you know, you, you said, is there a team at West? I think we pretty much know, you know, surprisingly, I think in the West, like Calgary, I guess would be my answer, but everyone knows that they're good at this point. Boston is one where I feel like people have kind of completely forgotten about them. Like they, they kind of, they have the vibe of getting disrespected and people think that they're just, you know, getting into the playoffs by default because of how weak the Atlantic is and, and all this stuff. Um, and, and especially they're, they're getting slept on defensively. Uh, and I think Bruins fans themselves are sleeping on them defensively to a pretty extreme extent. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to goaltending. They do have a lot of road left to I get those goaltenders more comfortable. You know, the, the Tuka Rask X factor is no longer in the mix. So it's going to be one of those two guys in the net. Um, but yeah, I think people are really sleeping on how good that team is defensively. Like they are, they are arguably the best team in the NHL defensively right now. And it's not because their personnel back there are, are overwhelmingly good. I think it really comes down to how they play as a team. And if they can address, especially the center issue at the deadline, like if they can get a uh, Thomas Hurdle or, I mean, even a Joe Pavelski, if, if all things go right, like if they can make that kind of move and really solidify down the middle and not have Eric Halla as their second line center, then. <laughs> oh, that... I've seen what happens when you do that before. Yeah, exactly. That went you that know, went well. That would really turn them into a team, I think, that could seriously compete for and even win a Stanley Cup that a lot of people have lost sight of, I think. I think it's because, you know, it feels like they're at the end of the window and everybody's wondering, like, okay, when's the cliff going to come, right? We've been saying, like, when's the cliff coming for Washington? When's the cliff coming for Pittsburgh, right? And it just it hasn't come. And I think people are starting to think about Boston in those same terms. Like, when's the cliff happening? You know, we think about the three teams in the Atlantic that are machines and you can't stop them. And then you forget, oh, the Bruins exist. Maybe it'll maybe people will remember the Bruins are good if they play Toronto again. Maybe. Well, I mean, the job for the Bruins has for a couple of years, I think, been to make sure that Cliff doesn't come by getting a replacement for Bergeron ready. And obviously they haven't done that yet. Like they didn't get Eichel. Uh, Their second line center, like I said, is Eric Halla. They don't have anybody else in the system. So the question for them, I think, moving forward, because like they theoretically, like between David Pasternak and Charlie McAvoy and maybe Swayman, maybe Omar, Omar or, or whoever, like they have the pieces in place that they could keep this thing going for a couple more years, um, even as Marchand and Bergeron uh, decline and retire. The question is all down the middle. And I think they have an opportunity here at the deadline to start putting pieces in place for that. They could go short term with a rental. They could maybe uh, do the the Thomas Hurdle thing and and you know really have kind of the air to, you know, I mean he's kind of half Krejci, half Bergeron, really, with his combination of being from the being from the Czech Republic and also uh, his playmaking and his defensive play. Uh, that would be a really interesting addition for them. But I think they do kind of have to do something because, like you said, that window at least for that current core with Bergeron and Marchand, like that is definitely closing. And I don't know if you can confidently march into the playoffs with Eric Hall as your second line center. Well, I mean, again, the Panthers tried that and look what happened. 
Well, that team was pretty bad though, and they got in by a technicality. Uh, yeah, don't, no, no more second line Eric Halla, please. I mean, maybe for the Panthers' sake, so they can actually win a series. But I mean, for Bruins fans' sake, and I have nothing against you, maybe you shouldn't have Eric Hall as your second line center. And and lastly, uh, is the, before we let you go, there's always talk about awards. You know, we have these discussions all the time. I have decided that the only one I'm going to harp on is Anton Lindell for Calder, even if that might not happen. It probably won't. Uh, is there a, an award candidate that you want to shout out that should be getting more love than he is? Oh, that is a good question. I haven't done a lot of awards stuff recently. Um, I guess I think it's just everyone was doing all their stuff around the all-star break. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, everyone is talking about Igor Shesterkin for the Vesna. I would have him pretty safely in my heart trophy conversation. And, and I, I would have him there the too. The Rangers stink. Um, they are bad, and yet he yeah. keeps them in every single game. It's insane how good he is. Well, I mean, even, uh, you know, I have all these microstats in front of me for the Rangers that are telling me even more stuff. And, yeah, I mean, you go into the more detailed stats, they they stink just as much as, as you would think from everything else. You know, they're the, the second-worst team at allowing shots off the rush. You know, they're uh, the 11th wor- uh, or, yeah, 11th worst in allowing – uh, passes across the slot you know they allow the fourth most rebounds the fourth most carry chances blah 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 you go down the list you know and that's just defensively I mean they they stink just as much offensively as well it's all it's all Shesterkin pretty much at this point it's Shesterkin and then a couple of star performances from Fox and Kreider and, and Panarin um, but yeah the foundations of that team are real shaky and I'm not convinced that they that they're able to keep things up long enough that we end up with the Igor Shesterkin Hart Trophy um you know, I, I think maybe the, the bottom might fall out and, and I'm not confident enough in goaltending consistency to, to be comfortable predicting that. But at least at this point, I think the Shesterkin Hart Trophy case is, is a very strong one. I was talking with Kevin Woodley about that uh, a little while back. And Kevin Woodley, if you've listened to what he says about Shesterkin, he raves about him, obviously. And I'm talking to him as I'm watching the Panthers get goalied by him for a second time after just blitzing the crap out of them. And you're just like, what are you supposed to do with that? You can't do anything. Uh, I guess I'll get you out of here on this because it's going to be a thing that Panthers fans will probably flood your mentions with on Twitter as we get later into the season. Uh, Jonathan, you were a legitimate heart contender. I don't think he's going to have any chance of winning it, but is would you go for a legitimate heart contender? So this is, I think this is probably the best heart trophy race that we've had in a really long time uh, in terms of like, there really are like, a lot of players who can make really good cases. And I don't think there's really any one rising above the pack, you know, unless you stop paying attention at the end of December and you decided that it was Alex Ovechkin and that was the end of the story. Um, you know, there really could be almost anybody at this point. Huberdo, you know, it, I mean, you saw Dom decision go with a similar thing where Huberdo's defensive play, you know, his defensive impacts have always been poor I think there's a pretty clear reason for it, which is how much he loves playing off the rush. If you play off the rush that as much as he does, you're going to let a lot go the other way. Um, and, and indeed that's what happens. Uh, I think he is one of the best offensive players in the league. Uh, you know, his playmaking I think is almost second to none in, in terms of what he's able to do, not only off the rush, but also inside the offensive zone. I, I, with how crowded the field is right now, I would have a hard time putting him in my top five. 
uh, for the Hart Trophy. But if he's able to keep up what he's doing and maybe as the team continues marching, the defensive numbers improve a little bit, I could definitely see him entering the conversation just because of how good he is offensively. I've decided that the reason why I want to do Lundell over um, uh, Huberto for awards is that I can more easily explain what Lundell is doing not as a product of the Panthers or a machine, as opposed to Jonathan Huberto, who has been this good for a while. You know, he's had insane seasons before that didn't get recognition. And I'm glad he's getting recognition now. He's deserved it for years and years and years. But I can make more of an argument for what Lundell doing being outstanding compared to Jonathan Huberto, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. And, you know, I mean, this, the Calder is the same thing, where people decided what the Calder was going to be a couple months ago. And I think that it's a lot more opened up than, than they might think. And, and we might discover that in a couple of weeks, suddenly we have these conversations where there's five, six, seven can, good candidates for pretty much every major award, uh, which would definitely be a lot more interesting than what we've had in the past couple of years. Yeah. It, it's going to be very, very fun to watch the rest of this. This has been a fun season. I have to say it's been, re- maybe it's just because, uh, the Panthers are good and I think they can win things. And that's really, really fun after all the yelling I've been doing them for years, but I'm just happy that I'm enjoy- like the, the hockey's good and the playoffs are going to be ludicrous this year. It's going to be great. So Jack, where can people find your work if they don't already follow you on Twitter as they should be doing? Well, they can find me on Twitter at jfreshhockey. They can read my work at elite prospects, uh, EP ringside uh, or on Substack, uh, also under the name jfreshhockey. Um, and if they like the sound of visualizations I, can, I was talking about, they can sign up for my Patreon, which is also under the name JFresh Hockey. Uh, and it is not yet going up because of the price of inflation. Not yet. No, not yet. Not losing, yet. No. Losing a couple more cents every, uh, every day, apparently. Perhaps, but also I don't know how many people actually knew what your name was until they've listened to you on podcasts before. No. I mean, I thought it was intuitive, but anyway. Uh, Thank you, Jack. It was great to have you on. We're going to talk to you down the line.